Good morning. Hello, everyone. Hello, this is Dee, and I'm in Richmond, Virginia, right now. Uh, this is Joe. I am back in Portland, Oregon, and I feel like this is the first first time since Dee's move to Virginia that it's just the two of us talking. Yes, that is correct. And I, I should know, I am not living in Richmond, Virginia. I am just visiting here as a uh, escape from. Uh, all the, the family energy that I am now immersed in, having moved to where uh, the whole my mom's side of the family lives. So Richmond has become my new um, uh, refuge, uh, uh -huh. solo time or with me and Wi-Fi. It's a very cool place, a very walkable city, and I'm a fan. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully someday I can... Maybe bring Henry there. It will be a long trip, but yeah, it would maybe be not Henry. <laughs> <laughs> if you do a road trip, it could end up here, and that could be fun. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned refuge because I remember, like during one of our early episodes, we talked about you know how do we feel about our home and our own space, and I felt mm -hmm. like what I was saying at the time was I really like. You know my home because it's quiet and it feels like a safe place for me. Yeah. So I definitely, you know, the refugee like refuge concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> concept. I can resonate with that. Yeah. Um, really. Yeah, and I think today we're gonna talk about some experience on China. Yes, because you just got back from China. Yeah, and I think space is one of the things I definitely experienced as a re-entry kind of experience when I mm -hmm. went back there. So yeah, I feel like we can kick up from there. Is I definitely felt like I temporarily lost my personal space when I was there for mm -hmm. three weeks with my family because. Um, one, we live, we all live like in apartments in China. So I think you like, even when you want to leave the house, it's, there's not much place to go. Like you can just go to your backyard or your front porch, mm -hmm. things like that. You would have to actually, you know, go for a walk or something. Um, and I feel like um, we talked about this a little bit, is that sharing a space with your parents is always tricky. And yeah, so it I is. Yep. <laughs> and I feel like at least when I was living in Beijing, it's very densely populated, right? And so like buildings don't really have their own private space even necessarily, unless it's like a luxury building with its own courtyard or something. But for the most part, you're just in it. You are in the community. People hang out outside their buildings. They comment on you, on your appearance. It's like, that's that's just part of the culture, right? Yeah, it really is. And I, I think it still is today. And talking about people commenting on your appearance is that, you know, when I, yeah, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I think the first week I got back home, um, my family took me to lunch and with their friends. And the first thing they would say to me is, you know, the way I look. 
and that's almost like every social interaction. I mean, I kind of understand it because I hadn't been back for like seven something, well, less than seven years, uh, six-ish years. And I understand, you know, after a long time, people haven't seen you. They say how you look. But I think the way people make comments is just, it's not just like, oh, you look great. Or like, I like your outfit today. You know, it's it's not like that. It's a very personal. It feels like your personal space is, be, is being poked into. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it could be very specific too. Like I remember walking around um, the apartment complex I was living in with my friend in Beijing and there were some older women just hanging out um, and they stopped my friend specifically to tell her that her her face looked really tired like she had from you know their in their opinion the circles under her eyes were too big and she needed to do, to do something about that right so it's like that kind of pointed commentary from strangers yeah. that I sort of got used to yeah. in China and yeah. very very different from you know Western or, you know, what you would expect someone to just feel comfortable commenting on, like walking around an American city. Yeah, I feel like maybe that's also part of the kind of community oriented culture. Like it doesn't bother people to say that. Right. And like for me, I feel like, oh, God, yeah, like I feel like I was wearing clothes, but I feel like people are looking at my body, like examining my body. I was like, oh, God, yeah, that is too much. So I think that's like one of the first kind of re-entry experience is like space, not like just physical space, sharing a house with your parents, but also kind of like privacy, which is funny because, you know, we all, I think in the U.S. as well, we have so much discussion around privacy these days. And in China, it's almost like, how to describe it? Like you don't feel it, but you but people don't have privacy because um, I might have mentioned to you the is it's a cashless society right now. Like you don't bring cash, like you just bring your phone and your key and you're good to go for the day. But then if you forgot your phone, that will be a problem. But um, yeah, or if your phone dies, like what do you do? <laughs> oh, that's another thing, though. We'll go back to the privacy. But one okay. thing about your phone is basically everywhere you go, if it's a service place, there is always a public charging station. It's fascinating. And I have never seen anyone just take someone's phone without permission. It's like entirely, say you go to a restaurant and there's always a charging station at the cashier or somewhere everyone can get access to. And it looks like a, a, a fridge. It looks like mini fridge, but they have uh, parts just like inserting areas for uh, the USB ports. Yeah. And for the phone, like you can just put your phone in there and it will charge. And sometimes it's like USB plugins, but they are just available everywhere. And people just leave their phones there. Like I saw like, and I was like, no one's worried about their phone being stolen or something. Or, or hacked? Like, is there any concern that when you plug it in, something might be well, happening? I mean, before I leave, I actually read something 
um, before I left China, I read something on, of course, WeChat saying, you know, they are actually discouraging people to charge their phones in public place. Right. It is a security kind of risk, but yes. people just do it everywhere, especially at the airport. Everyone just like hovering on like a, a like a tech technology hub or like a charging station or like an entertainment center or whatever. And you can just see a bunch of people connecting their phones and just using it. Wow. Um, so Very that's trusting. That, that's the thing. I don't think it's a trust thing. It's because people are so used to it. Oh, okay. It doesn't, or, you know, everyone knows privacy is sort of a joke there. So I think people just give up. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. It's like, well, my phone is, you know, people are listening anyways already. So who cares if somebody else, you know, yeah, and I think malware on my phone. <laughs> and also scamming or people try to trick you into something. Like it mm-hmm. just happens all the time. And I think people mm-hmm. are so used to it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing with a cashless society is, um, you know, China is really strong on facial recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every, uh, say, a cashier or like a store, you can just scan your phone and pay either with Alipay or with like WeChat Pay, something like that. Um, and there's always some sort of like scanner there. So I'm sure they see people's face all the time. And the government just knows where you are, uh, basically every point in your life. And I think that was something they used during COVID. And uh, right now, less so for COVID tracing. I mean, I think they still do it because I had to fill like my health information um, at the airport, both entering and leaving. So they they could track you if they want to, or say someone around you got infected or something. Um, but I think right now is um, they just want to know it's this big data. They want to know your uh, consumer behavior. They want to know where you are. They want you know what you are buying, and it's it's mind blowing because. Because I didn't use those um, apps to pay for things. So when I had to, I still used cash and credit card. But that was so rare. It was absolutely um, like everyone around me, no one used uh, cash or card. It's all just in their phones. So that's that's amazing. Um, it is super convenient, extremely convenient. Convenient, but... All your data belongs to them. <laughs> yes, it's very scary if you think about the scale. Like, how many people China have? Uh, what's the population now? Uh, some I don't know. Some meal. Yeah, we can look it up. But it's, it's a just, lot. Yeah, imagine everyone's data, everyone's whereabouts. Yeah, is seen. 1.4 billion. 1.4 billion. <laughs> it, yeah, it's mind-boggling. But I did witness, you know, the level of 
seamlessness of life in China.、Mm-hmm. And you、mm-hmm. get a car via your phone. You buy shit via your phone. You go to a restaurant using your phone. You book everything on your phone. And so, yeah, it's scary. It it does feel a little bit Black Mirror ish.、Mm-hmm. But that's one of the biggest kind of re-entry learning experience this time. Yeah,、uh, I'm. I'm guessing no one talked about that, right? Like no one talks about any concerns with using their phone and the fact that their data is probably being used for other things. People didn't specifically talk about it when I was there,、mm-hmm. but there are moments when. So the interesting thing is、um, the censorship, right?、Mm-hmm. In China, you know, they monitor your online comments, your online behavior all the time. So if、right. you made any funny comments or remarks about the government,、uh, they will know. So people don't really do that these days. But the thing is, offline, I like in private conversations, like relatively speaking, private conversations. Um, people do talk about the current government and how how things are shifting, like in the air, like the dynamics and the political environment,、uh, the economy that's、uh, affected by all the new or different policies,、uh, including foreign policies these days. So it is being discussed privately, and people sometimes do share their opinions、uh, relatively openly. Um, so I actually mentioned things like, you know, your phones are listening, right? And people would just look at me for a couple seconds. Are like, yeah. And I'm like, what? Are, do you feel comfortable just making comments about the government here? Like, everyone's phone is listening these days.、Mm-hmm. So I don't know if people fully comprehend the the scale of censorship. Like just because you are not writing online doesn't mean they don't know what you are talking. Right.、Um, so that's my understanding. But the interesting thing is, I did hear just day-to-day conversations, people making comments. Some sometimes like, not like very serious comments, but kind of like joking, but not joking about how things are different now compared、mm-hmm. to before. Hmm. So yeah, so I don't know where people are exactly when it comes to、um, their understanding of、uh, censorship in China, but I think people are aware. I just don't know they understand the risk people are taking. Yeah, the, China is so drastically different from you know six seven years ago. It's like. I feel like if you are just like a normal person, you work a nine to five, nine five job, and you have a family to support. That's all you care about.、Mm-hmm. Like no one is gonna be like, oh yeah, like we don't have the real freedom, we don't really have privacy, and we're gonna become activists. Like that's not how things. I mean, there are activists in China, and we've seen movements. Um, but on a day-to-day level, people are just trying to live their life, and and from that perspective, I think China has done a very tremendous job. Like, I think talk about an、uh, authoritarian government is they get shit done. I don't know regardless of of how many humans need to be 
exploited in order to get <laughs> done or how much land needs to be, you know, claimed yeah. for other purposes. It's like, yep. Exactly. They, I, I don't know what your experience, uh, sorry, experience was, you know, when you lived in China, the, um, especially, you know, in Beijing, I don't fully understand what life was like in Beijing. Uh, but it's the network, the whole network in China when it comes to infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, like the trains, the railroad uh, system is fascinating. Um, it is, yeah. Um, and I was there in the lead up to the um, the Olympics in Beijing. And it was fascinating and somewhat scary to see how quickly new metro stations were opening up. It would be like, oh, it's another day and there's a new station and that's cool because now I can more easily go explore that neighborhood. That was just part of my, my lived experience there was the – the expectation that there were going to be new subway stations opening just because that was happening that quickly. And that was, you know, it was strange to then come back to New York and be like, wait, the same subway stations have existed for this long and there haven't been any new ones. What's going on? (laughs) And then also not just the Metro, like buildings were going up literally overnight. Right. Um, and you would see migrant workers working at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the dark building. And everyone knew that that's what was happening, right? Like people were being brought in, living in subpar conditions purely to build and to do the bidding of what needed to happen for the upcoming Olympics. Olympics. That was that was a crazy time. Yeah, and just to witness that speed is there wasn't there a term called China speed? Was there? I I, I would believe it. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember, but like for me, this time what something I wish I had done but didn't really have the opportunity to do uh, is to ride the train. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Last time I was in China, I was able to take the train uh, in Eastern China. But that was because, um, you know, Eastern China is uh, kind of the top economy um, area region in China. So I think infrastructure wise, they were absolutely prioritized by the government. So last time I was there, even though I took the speed train, it wasn't anywhere near uh, Guilin, where I'm from, South China. So this time I learned that the entire southern and southeast and southwest region of China uh, fully developed the, the railroad system and the speed train system. So if you want to, you can take a train from Guilin to Guangzhou in like two and a half hours. So the context is um, in the past. So I went to college in Guangzhou. And if we took a train, it would be like an overnight train. So it would be like more than eight, nine, ten hours um, during that time. And that was 2006. 
So 2006, 2007, like we would take the train and it would be overnight. And now, you know, if you take the train to Guangzhou and back to Guilin, that's, you know, uh, some people joke about uh, taking the train in the morning from Guilin to Guangzhou and getting some and then take the afternoon train back. Wow. Like you can just do day trip. Right. So, so that's the level of kind of, how efficient the railroad system right now. And my friends who live in Guangzhou, they they came and visit me like over a weekend. And that's mm-hmm. what they did is just to take a two hour train and then come and hang out. And then two days later, take the train back home. And it's mm-hmm. super, super convenient. And I really wish I had taken the train once but that didn't happen so i'm i'm hoping next time like whenever i go back again i really want to experience that kind of um infrastructure and just a whole uh railroad system um and people are saying another thing i noticed that was relevant is uh the airports are less busy Mm-hmm. Uh, days. I think partially because of COVID. So the economy mm-hmm. is still kind of like dragging behind. Like China is saying, you know, they're going to see growth this year. But I think like right now, it is coming back, the economy, but it's not as fast as people would imagine. So I think that's one of the reasons the the airport is uh, less busy these days. Another reason I really think is because of the train. Like if you can go somewhere within two, three hours, even four or five hours by train, why would you take, why would you go to the airport? You know, like take a flight that just takes so much more unnecessary steps and time. Mm-hmm. Um, versus going to a train station, hop on a train, and you are there. Right. It's yeah. much newer and cleaner. Yeah. I mean, I really liked the trains there even before they did any overhauling of that that system. It yeah. Was a, yeah. A fun experience to ride the train in China. Yeah, the train is fun. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I think going back to the efficiency of an uh, authoritarian government. And I'm not for that type of governing. But my observation is when they want to get something at this scale done, they just do it. But I also see the damage is, you know, like you mentioned, D is the exploitation of labor and probably mm-hmm. low wage as well. And it's just mm-hmm. like high pressure, like super, super intense. Yeah. Um, what are the other reentry experience? I mean, food, food is amazing. Yeah. Did, was it like amazing as in better than before or it just was good to have access to that food again? I think, I think the, I mean, I think food is in the center of many, many cultures, uh, in Chinese culture as well. Um, like something I find kind of strange, it's kind of a feeling is how uh, familiar everything is and how unfamiliar everything is at the same time. Um, like I expected you know, the variety of food, I thought it would be 
uh, impressive and it was. Um, so I was able to, you know, try and enjoy different kind of all kinds of like Chinese dishes, etc. At the same time, I realized that I'm just not used to that level of uh, immersion into Chinese food anymore. Like it's not a bad thing. Like I just realized I learned to only um, it's like a treat here, you know, it's mm-hmm. like. In the U.S., it's like, well, first of all, I'm not a very good cook. Like, I don't cook every day. So, yeah, beg to differ. You are a great cook, but go on. <laughs> well, um, thank you. Um, but I feel like here, when I get Chinese food, it feels it's a big. Like, I feel like it's a thing. Like, mm-hmm. we can get Chinese food, right? Like, it's yeah. a, and we're like on the hunt for the authentic places, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then you get so excited when you come across some place where, oh, yeah, their Chinese food is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, you know, you are back home, you are in China, like that's literally what you eat from breakfast to dinner. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that kind of immersion kind of surprised me a little bit. Um, because that's just that's the thing about feeling familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. Like mm-hmm. it's the same shit you ate growing up. Right. But at the same time, oh, you, you get to eat it every meal. Like mm-hmm. that feels different. Mm-hmm. And also I think the quality of food just in general um, has improved. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know how to describe it because a lot of them taste the same. At the same time, they taste better. Do you think it's like the ingredients, like where they're being sourced from or? I feel, yeah, I feel definitely the ingredients and I think cooking just feels different now. Well, Mm. maybe it's because I was, you know, growing up there. It's like, that's what you eat every day. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's nothing special. And now you feel like this is special. Like, I feel like this thing tastes better, even just like chicken. I'm like, this chicken tastes good. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, so that to me is, uh, interesting and it's a good feeling, you know, it's familiar and then it's also exciting. It's like Mm -hmm. every day, Ooh, what are we going to get today? Ooh, like what are we going to do tomorrow? Mm -hmm. So, so that was fun. What was, um, the service culture like when you were in a restaurant and you were, you know, asking a waiter to come over or because I remember that was one of the culture shocks for me in when I was living in China was the way you interact with say restaurant staff is very different from the way you expect in uh, like an American restaurant. Um, So I'm wondering if that has shifted or if it's pretty much the same uh, where there's just like, there's no niceties. It's not like a, a waiter comes up to you in China and asks how you're doing. Right. Uh, or says, you know, what can I get? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is that way now. That's so that's what I'm asking. <laughs> so it's interesting you ask that because one of the things that I felt very kind of like different this time is how good service has become in China. 
Because like even here in the U.S., right, sometimes you go to an Asian kind of a mom and pop shop. It's like they don't give a fuck. It's just like we serve yeah. you very, very good food and you eat your food and you go. Right. Um, that was the case in China before. I feel mm-hmm. like the service was like, what What do you want? Basically, like we'll, we'll cook your food, we'll serve your food and then you get out. And yeah. very now, transactional. Very transactional. Uh, and the thing is without tipping system, like you don't tip in China. It's not like I'm trying to impress you or anything and I'm right. trying to get more tipping. Like that that's not the case. And they still isn't because people still don't tip in China. Um, but at the, at the restaurant, for example, if we go to even like a slight, slightly nice restaurant, the servers, the serving staff, they come greet you pretty quickly. It's not like they're asking you how you're doing or things like that. There's no chit chat, but they are very quickly to give you, you know, water, uh, uh, silverware and um, the menu very quickly. Uh, And then they'll be like, are you ready to order or do you need a few minutes? So that's pretty similar to here. At least that was my experience. And then a lot of places, what they do these days, uh, which I think might also be a byproduct of COVID, is they give you a sheet. Uh, So two ways. They either give you a paper sheet and you can circle what you want to order and give it back Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. So no one is taking your order. And they are just like looking at, oh, this is what you want. Or you scan a QR code similar to here, look at the menu and just order there so uh so i think that improves the efficiency uh and then there's another kind of amazing rule at many restaurants in china is they have a time limit like they have to serve you food within certain minutes uh sometimes it's 15 minutes sometimes it's 25 but the Almost every restaurant has that kind of policy. It, it's not necessarily written, but you will know that is their policy because they will tell you, we're going to serve your first dish in 20 or 25 minutes or something like but that. But who tells you that? Like the, the, uh, the staff? Like, uh, oh, really? Yeah, the staff working there, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, around how many minutes you can expect food uh, your food to be served. Or there is one place we went to that had an hourglass, like an hourglass for every table. So you flip it and your food has to arrive before, uh, you know, all the sand hits the bottom. What? Yeah. So what happens if it doesn't? They'll give you free food. What? Yes. When did this start? Like, what do you, do you know? I have no idea, but I was blown away by how quickly we are served food. And it's not, and it's not like, just because they are quick doesn't mean the food is not good. It's actually very good food. It's like, you know, a whole fish or chicken or some other very kind of delicate dish, even if it was vegan or vegetarian, it's like all very good, but very, very fast. And I think the reason is, um, one, it's, it's become very competitive in China just because the economy is 
kind of lacking right now. And, you know, restaurants want to survive. And how do you keep your customers? Uh, one thing is good service and two, good food and comes fast. Um, so, yeah, the service industry has evolved, I think. And some restaurants even use a robotic device to serve food. And that's also fascinating. Uh, and I think the sad thing is, so you wouldn't really be able to pull this off if you are a very small production. Like say, if you are a small restaurant and all you can afford is uh, two, maybe one chef and two cooks, something like that. And if that's the case, there's no way you can serve food super quickly. Um, so you have to have like a, a sizable kitchen with a few people cooking at the same time and some other people prepping food for you. Um, so I think that's the only way you can serve food that quickly mm-hmm. is to have a large or large-ish operation yeah, um, that makes in sense. the kitchen and also serve it like uh, just service staff as well. Mm-hmm. Because we did go to some smaller restaurants and the speed was definitely not as impressive as the restaurants. And which kind of, which is messed up because small businesses have a really hard time surviving right now. And if you cannot compete with the bigger players, Mm -hmm. so I don't know, I think the competitiveness is interesting and people do get better service because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, if you are a small operation, yeah, that that's going to be scary. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what else? What else? What else? Uh, oh, so many. Um, I thought you had a list. I thought you were prepared. <laughs> Uh, well, to a degree, uh, yeah, there are so there are a lot of uh, so talking about environmental issues, mm-hmm. uh, like we all know, pollution is a huge problem in China, right? Um, I've told you my my pollution anecdote, right? When I was living in Beijing on a major, uh, well, they. I was told that if you lived uh, by a major intersection, the impact was equivalent to smoking a pack a day of cigarettes. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. That was just, you know, something people told me. But I do know that uh, when I would uh, spend a day, you know, walking around outside and then come in, uh, my if I blew my nose, my snot would be dark. Ah, didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> oh, that's so yeah, so it it, it didn't look good, didn't feel good. That, that's just Oof. that was back in two thousand eight. So, did you get your lungs checked? <laughs> I haven't gotten them checked, but yeah, <laughs> oh, I was that's only there not... for you know under a year. Yeah, well, still. Uh, no, yeah, the environmental issues that I see, one is smog. Like in the southern city, you know, Guilin, supposedly it's a touristy town and it still is. It's beautiful there. And it uh, it has a lot of greenery, water, mountains, etc. 
even that, I still felt the smog when I was there, mm-hmm. which is bizarre in a way because, first of all, Guilin doesn't have a lot of factories. Like it had, it actually has pretty strict policy of limiting um, how many factories or how much industry uh, can exist in the city or around the city. So we we don't have a lot of like pollution or like source of pollution to begin with so that was kind of weird um and still i i felt the smog and the pollution when i was there so and that's actually a better you know place if you want to enjoy you know environment kind of like better uh, environment in China, like Guilin is one of the places where you go um, for that kind of experience. So that was kind of unfortunate. Um, and then the other thing on environmental issues is, um, well, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, is uh, how many electric cars people use in China now. So people mm-hmm. drive electric cars uh, pretty kind of regularly because i saw so many in the road on the road and without and i wasn't really aware of um the market share of electric cars in china so i wasn't i didn't know i just saw a lot of uh so electric cars use green plates and regular gasoline cars use blue plates and I noticed there are so many green plates on the road everywhere we go. So I got curious and I looked up and it's roughly 30% of market share um, electric cars in China, 30%. So that's a lot. Um, do, do, they, do they get incentivized? And in, I'm assuming there's a reason to have the plate color difference because I remember at one point, it was like you could only drive on the road if your license plate number had even like ended in an even number or something. Do you remember that? There was some so. policy yeah, there to reduce that. traffic. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think they still do that on different like special occasions. I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure, but I do think they still do that. Yeah. I believe there is some incentives for people who choose to drive like an electric car. It's probably some government program that I didn't really look into. But the thing is, one, electricity is cheap. So you can fully charge your car in a couple of hours, right? And then you're good to go. Uh, So if you mainly drive in the city, I think that's a pretty easy kind of switch, especially when uh, gas is pretty expensive in China. Like, for example, my family, my parents still use old school gasoline cars. And every month, their expense on gas is around a thousand Chinese yuan. So without, so like here is, for me at least, it's a little bit over a hundred a month, something like that. So if you don't kind of convert the currency without looking at the currency kind of uh, exchange rate, if you imagine yourself spending $1,000 on gas a month, that's a lot. So for an average Chinese person, right, like you you have a, I don't know, small family, like three to four people, um, parents, two kids, 
And that's another thing, like one-child policy doesn't exist anymore. So it's really common to have a four-people family. And if you have one car and you spend like $1,000 on gas, that's a lot, like it adds up quickly. So, but if you just use um, electricity uh, and an electric car, and if you are just driving the city, then the cost kind of goes down very quickly. So I think that's another reason more people uh, opting uh, to electric cars these days. And I'm yeah, sure there is I'm reading there was an incentive. So it says, this is from, I think, Bloomberg, uh, owners who deregister internal combustion engine cars that are one to six years old received 8,000 yuan, while those who replaced those combustion engine cars older than six years got 10,000 yuan. The incentives helped stimulate 5 billion yuan of um, electric car sales in the second half of 2022, according to the Beijing government. So those are serious incentives. But apparently as of January this year, the government no longer provides subsidies to buyers of electric vehicles. This is on ChinaDialogue.net. But this the subsidy started back in 2010. Oh, wow. wow. Mm Mm-hmm. That is wild. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens next after the incentives go away. Yeah, so so that's fascinating. But another thing that you know kind of intrigued me was the needs of batteries. Like you need so many batteries for that many electric cars, and. I think battery production itself is an interesting topic when it comes to environmental issues. You know, all those rare materials like lithium, I'm sure China is mining <laughs> all those rare materials. And what does that do to the environment? You know, that's also a pretty big um, discussion there. So I think. When it comes to electric cars, it is pros and cons. Like you use less gas, but then you you are using so many rare materials. And a lot of those materials, they are in African countries, Latin American countries, and I think Australia and Canada too. And what does that do to the populations and um, the resident of those countries and areas, and how does that impact the local labor market and economy? And I feel like sure. that's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's another big issue. And so, yeah, so I think that's another reentry kind of cultural experience to me that's kind of shocking um, and, you know, impressive and also uh, concerning at the same time. Another thing that is fascinating to me is education Um, because we've witnessed how I think COVID really uh, affected education here, right? Like public school system in the United States. Uh, Kids are falling behind like on reading, math, and some other uh, subjects. Um, And I think in China... They are trying so hard to uh, educate um, and not 
I have to say it's not very pleasant witnessing um, the younger generation having to go through very, very intense uh, school. Just so we have a few young children in the family. Um, my youngest cousin is 16 years old and he goes to a boarding school and he only gets one day off a week. And he has to study from like morning, like a nine every day. And then he goes to bed after 10 p.m. Just because how much school they have to do every single day. Wow. Um, and I mean, they are very smart. They are excellent on all subjects, almost like, I mean, you if you have the resource, right? Like if you go to a private school, have really good teachers and resources, and if you study hard, of course, you're going to be excellent. But at the same time, I think one of the reasons there are so many kids, like, you know, high schooler, middle schooler, um, choose to sometimes, you know, hurt themselves, like self-harm and mental health issues. A lot of them come from uh, just high highly intense uh, schooling these days. Um, so I don't know how I feel about that. And it definitely, like, it makes me very happy seeing my uh, cousins and my cousin's children, you know, excel at school. Um, at the same time, they just study all the time. There's always something going on. Like for my, for my cousin's kids, um, most of them are like seven, nine years old now. And they have so many extra um, tutoring and classes after school. Like school ends after two. And those kids have to take extra classes for like two, three more hours. And they don't go home until five or six. Um, I mean, some of them are for fun, you know, dancing and some other um, classes just to like say music class whatever um but just the amount of work they have to do as a seven nine years old that's a lot and they have to do homeschool too at night mm -hmm. uh, yeah so. I remember I was one of those those English language tutors that was brought in by families to to do that extra tutoring for kids these are families yeah. that could afford it right um and you know the pressure. The pressure is high. It's higher now. Whatever you saw then, it's a lot worse now. I believe it. Because I feel like growing up, I had a pretty kind of like I had to take extra class growing up too, but not on that level. Like, yeah, they all they do is school, and then they play some too, but. Compared to kids here and probably in some other countries, they don't get a lot of playtime. And all they care about is, you know, writing, reading, English, math, science, all those. Uh, and yeah, that's I wonder what the, the longer term psychological impacts of that are. I know you're, I mean, you're already saying there's a clear mental health impact for folks. Yeah, even when I was there, you know, my family uh, and my friends there, they were sharing stories of, 
you know, someone's kids or someone else's kids, someone's family, like all that kind of um, interesting, like mental health stories, related stories. Um, so kids really need help today. And I also saw news about, you know, young schoolers tragically, you know, choose to end their lives because they just cannot take it anymore. Like literally on their final notes, like saying goodbye to the world is just like, I don't want to disappoint you or I feel like I just cannot take it anymore. And it's it's very, very sad and alarming. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so some kids are doing really well. Um, again, especially if your family has the resource, uh, but the cost is very high, just mentally and emotionally. Yeah, so that's another thing. I just not just kind of heard about, but saw you know, kids in my family, what they are experiencing these days and thinking about um, the public school system in the United States is, uh, it's a little concerning because that means our next generation, you know, in both US and China are for different reasons uh, or various reasons are going through a very hard time right now. Yeah, but you were you were telling me um, previously that mental health in general was something people were talking more about. Yeah, uh, that was one of the things that surprised you. Yeah, so I'm wondering if the fact that those conversations are happening more might help yeah. the situation. Yeah, I think that's a silver lining in it. Is mm-hmm. how much uh, I didn't feel it's so much of like taboo talking about mental health in China these days. Uh, I had conversations with my family members about, you know, their mental health journey, how they kind of like recognize, oh, I'm kind of like a wake up call for many, many people, right? Like depression is real and it can be very scary and people actively seek help these days. Uh, And one thing that really impressed me is how non-judgmental people are when they talk about mental health. And it's just like your um, kind of like your everyday conversation. It's like, how are you doing? Like, are you taking your meds and are you feeling better? Like some people will say, last time I saw you, you weren't feeling very well. How about now? Like, how do you feel now? Um, so to me, that is very hopeful. Um, and one, one, one kind of case that I learned about is uh, the, the doctor-patient agreement. Uh, they respect that too. So as a patient, if you choose to disclose your diagnosis, et cetera, sure, that's your you know, choice. And people still do that. Yes. But if someone is like, I don't want to disclose my diagnosis, then you actually have a real like doctor-patient agreement. Um, someone from my family, they were seeking help and they did get it. So that's, again, that's privilege. That's very fortunate. And what they what happened is um, the doctor agreed to not disclose their diagnosis even to their immediate family. So we all know, you know, this family member uh, they chose to get health care, uh, I mean, mental health care, but no one in the family knew and knows 
exactly what the diagnosis is. So I think that's I think that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. And you are right. It's like people are um, experiencing more mental health challenges these days. At the same time, people are being pretty open about either sharing their experiences or um, kind of showing up for other people without uh, judgment. So I think that's really cool to see and refreshing because I know like here, like I'm pretty open about, you know, getting therapy and I think you are as well, Dee. But I think most people in our lives that I know, people don't talk about it very much still. I mean, it is better than before, uh, but I was very, very impressed by how open people are on mental health in China these days. And I didn't yeah. expect at all. Like it's something I, that's that's like a real re-entry surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I didn't expect people just be so open about it at all. Yeah, like some reduction in stigma there, which yeah. is great. Yeah, yeah, it is great. Um, I mean, China is a huge country and I was only back there for three weeks and in my hometown and uh, and I was in Shanghai for a very brief period of time when I was there. Um, so I feel like my re-entry experience is not complete. It's like there's so much going on right now and I feel like there's a lot to be discovered. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And even now, I still think about, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And still processing um, my experience there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's cool. You can certainly return to it in future episodes. And also, you and I should go on a trip. I think we should. We should take the train for sure. Um, (laughs) fly there and then take the train places because it legit is cool (laughs) (laughs) like there are three train stations in just Guilin and Mm -hmm. Guilin is not a big city like this small town I mean relatively speaking (laughs) probably a big city you know on US standard but a smaller city in China has three train stations that blows my mind mm-hmm. and we should design kind of like how like you and i we can design a trip that's like following the the railway system you know from east to west or yes. south to north however that goes and i'm, I'm sure it's go down for that yeah Definitely. and it, it's just yeah so uh so yeah that's re-entry re-entry and mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really glad I got to do it. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. I'm and also glad happy. you're back. Yes, <laughs> at the same time, I'm I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I saw my family and friends and witnessed the changes. I'm also really glad to be back home, uh, like here, like in my own house, and see my dog again. Because someone said something about. We travel in order to go home. I don't know. <laughs> no? I used to travel explicitly to not go home. So it depends on your it depends on your your current you know life phase. I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, until next time. Okay. Until next time. Bye.
I'll talk you to too. you soon. Bye. Bye.